0: Well, good afternoon. It's great to see you all and be with you. And I see some visitors with us today, some friends. It is great to see you all and have you here. We're in 1 John 1. Uh, you can turn over there. We're going to be in verses 5 all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. And, and this passage, it's, it, this is one of those challenging passages where if you weren't committed to verse-by-verse preaching through the Bible, you might be tempted to skip it. Because a lot of the verses talk about sin. And who wants to talk about sin, really? That's one of those things that we really would rather not bring it up. Our culture, for example, they talk about sin. Well, sin is really kind of in the eye of the beholder with our current culture, isn't it? Everyone has their own definition. Some would say sin is simply the failure to to live up to one's true expression uh, and, and really, it's just overcoming ignorance. Others might say, well, sin, it's a serious shortcoming or a fault. But perhaps it's to be blamed because of, you know, bad parenting or genetics. I was born this way or, or lack of education. Others, it's a taboo or something reprehensible that they've done. And, and it, it becomes amazing to us that some people embrace their sin as a form of entitlement and and a badge of honor to define it for themselves. Well, in this passage and in 1 John as a whole, uh, John is talking really straight and clear about sin. Uh, Here in our passage before us, we'll read it now, but John speaks about sin. He says, uh, beginning in verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us, and if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What a passage. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this passage. It's it's well known to, to many of us. John is going to say later in chapter 3, verse 4, he's going to give a definition of sin, saying, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, now that's an interesting definition because very often we want to separate the law from the lawgiver, And that's probably due to the fact that we live in a country where we have lots of laws, but they're sort of nebulous as to who even came up with the laws, how they came about. It was probably some elected official uh, or some congressman or whatever that we don't even know who it is. And so very often, if we just limit sin as, well, I broke the law... We can minimize it because we separate it from the lawgiver. And when John is speaking about this, we see in 1 John, he's clear that when you break God's law, that sin is lawlessness, it's not merely that you're breaking a rule. You're offending a person. And the person you're offending is the lawgiver who is God the Father. Through the Son, Jesus Christ, given in the, by inspiration uh, by the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity in other words, if sin is lawlessness, what we do when we confess our sins is say God is God and I am not. I don't measure up to God. I'm not the standard of righteousness, nor do I make the standard of righteousness. God does. And this is what John's going to get at. And, and, and when I say there's all of these ways the world talks about sin, I don't, I don't mean to give us sort of an us versus them mentality. That's not my desire here. Rather, I'm hoping that through this message that it would motivate our hearts to share the good news of the gospel to those lost in darkness, those bound up in sin, because it was us. And we've been freed, just like we sang. I'm free, but not I, but Christ who lives in me, right? It's because, not because I'm so great, It's not because I was able to do spiritual push-ups and just get myself out of a sinful state. No, it's because Jesus, as we're going to see, His blood cleanses us completely from the stain of our sin. He did it all. And so the purpose this afternoon is really to show that what John's after is not just that we receive the gospel, but that we display the gospel in our lives when we walk in the light as God is in the light. So, we saw last week that John is wanting them to see in verse 3 that we would have fellowship. And our fellowship would be with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and other Christians. And what does this fellowship with God and Christ look like? Well, in verse 5, John is continuing and he says, This is the message we heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness At all. So verse 5, we hear this message of life in the light. What does it mean to live in the light, to be in the light, to walk in the light? And we're going to see that it's life, eternal life as God intended. John, throughout his his, uh, letter here, is going to talk about these two contrasts of the regenerate, those born of God, and the unregenerate, those who are not born of God. Those who have spiritual life and those who have spiritual death. Those who are living in love and those who are living in fear. After all, perfect love casts out fear. Those who are living in truth and those who are living in falsehood. Those who are good and those who are evil. Those who are in light and those who are in darkness. And we heard it in our scripture read today in John eight twelve. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this idea of God being light is the idea that the, the, the mor- moral excellencies of God, it, it's not really saying what God is. After all, John 4 tells us that, that God is spirit. It's saying who God is. He's the one who is light. And this light is life. Life is God intended it to be. And so the message of the gospel is a message of life. And this is why it's so important to talk about sin. Because sin is darkness. It's it's a message of death. Uh, Turn over to the gospel of John chapter 1. I want you to see this here because John's really uh, alluding to his own gospel introduction here. And in John 1 verses 4 and 5. he had just talked about the Word who was with God and the Word was God, and we know he's talking about Jesus, but he hasn't mentioned his name yet. In verse 4 he says, "...in him, in the Word, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it." Now in the letter to John he says, "...well, God is light, and in him is no darkness." None at all. None whatsoever. Not one bit of darkness. And the darkness will never overcome the light because God is light. Light is this moral quality of God that represents life. And as light, He's the source of all life. And so Jesus, He taught us about what it means that the Father is the one who's the source of all life. In John 5, 26, As the Father has life in Himself, He's granted the Son to have life in Himself. So the Father has life in Himself. Life comes from the Father. After all, He's the one who created all things, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, He didn't do it by Himself. He did it through the Son and by the Spirit. And so the Son has life in Himself. And the Spirit is the living water of John 4 and 7, who John 6 says the Spirit's the one who gives life. And so, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, life is given to us. And John characterizes that life as light. God is light. And in Him is no darkness whatsoever. Uh, Turn back over to 1 John. I want you to go to chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. We see it a little more clear here as John gets towards his conclusion of the letter. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So that's at the end of the letter, in the concluding idea of what John's going to get out through the whole letter. And he basically says, this is what it means to have eternal life. Now back to 1 John 1. He's going to say that we need to walk in the light by implication. So the message of the gospel is life, that God is light, and He is the light of life. And believing this message means moving from darkness to life. In Him is no darkness, none at all. There's no dark side to God, right? Right? Even Luke Skywalker had a dark side. There's no dark side in God. He's not going into that cave and seeing some representation of his dark side. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. The light drives out the darkness. That's what John's getting at in in the Gospel of John. He said the darkness will never overcome the light. And in Jesus, we move from darkness to life. Just look at a few verses here. Chapter 1, verse 3. He says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We looked at this last week. This is the idea of communion, koinonia, fellowship. We now live in the sphere of the presence of the Father and Son for the purpose of relationship and drawing near to God because He's drawn near to us in Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 9 No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So life is pictured like a seed that's been planted in us and now there's new life springing up in us because we're born of God. And so we can't make a practice of sinning anymore. We're going to walk in the light rather than walking in the darkness. Chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of Him. Well, how do we know we have this seed planted in us? Well, chapter 5, verse 1, it's not ultimately about how we feel. It's about believing that Jesus is the Christ. What a wonderful means of assurance, isn't it? We talked about this last week, that John's purpose is to give us assurance and if John left us in a condition in his letter that said, well, you only can have assurance if you see enough life in you. How would we ever have assurance? Because we're our own worst critic, aren't we? If we're honest, if, if we have been born of God, we're tenderhearted and we, we see our sin for what it is and we think, man, I sure don't have enough life in me. If my life is a fruit stand, there's not enough on display. It's not like Rayleigh's over here that has an abundance that they have to throw it out. It's like some pathetic fruit stand with like one, you know, half brown banana in it. That's how I feel like my life is. I'm thinking, man, is there enough fruit? But John says in chapter 5 verse 1 that, well, how do you know you've been born of God? You're believing that Jesus is the Christ. It's external to us. It's the finished work of Jesus for us, and he's going to say it in First John chapter one as well. And he goes on to say, verse four, "Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. What is it? Your fruit? Your good works? What does he say? Your faith, believing. It's incredible. Well, man, I don't, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? That's what Peter said. Jesus said, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the author of Hebrews says, but he who uh, believes that he exists, he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And so we have this great hope that we can have assurance that we're born of God, that we're walking in the light, that we have life because we've believed that Jesus is our Savior. That's it. End of discussion. That's good news. This is the message that we heard from him, Jesus, John says. And we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, what are the implications of this life in the light? Verses 6 to 10, back in 1 John, this is where he digs into... The connection between sin and darkness and light and life. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So living, we see sin for what it is. It's living in darkness. And John characterizes it by truth and falsehood here. He says, verses 6 and 7, sin, living in darkness, is lying to others. Verses 8 and 9, it's lying to ourselves. And verse 10, it's lying about God. Let's let's look at this. So if we are now living life in the light, we no longer lie to other people. Verses 6 and 7. Here's where I'm getting this. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that's a bit odd, isn't it? Because you would think the parallel would be, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with God. That seems to be what I would think the parallel would be. But he says, no, we have fellowship with one another. So this confessing or saying that we're walking in the light is in the context of others. And those who say, oh, I don't have any sin, I'm walking in the light. While they're secretly living in sin, they're lying and not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, walking is the way we live, the way we behave, the pattern, the habit of our life. And so walking in darkness or walking in the light, though He never explains it in this letter, he, I think he's alluding back to John chapter 3 where he does talk about this. So turn over to John 3. I know I have you turning a few places. It's uh, practice. We've only really been in John and 1 John, I think, right? We're trying to keep it, keep it easy. John 3, you know verse 16 really well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. Here it is. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Think about that context. If, if we go around saying, oh, I'm walking in the light, but all the while we're living a double life. We're the double O negative of, you know, of, of the church life. Really, I'm a, a walking in the darkness, but I say I'm walking in the light. We're lying to others and we're deceiving ourselves in a way. And the antidote is verse 7, of course, to walk in the light. Now, I want to take a moment to say what walking in the light doesn't mean. To walk in the light does not mean we're sinless. That's not what John says here. He doesn't say, Oh, in order to walk in the light, you have to never sin. That's not what John's teaching. What he's teaching is we need to be honest about our sin. If we lie about our sin, we're walking in darkness. If we're honest about our sin, honest to God, honest to others, honest to ourselves, we're walking in the light. So to walk in the light means to be cleansed from our sin. Not that we have no sin, but that we're cleansed from it. Why? Because the blood of Jesus, verse 7, His Son cleanses us from all sin. See, we don't just need more ethical instruction in order to become sinless, in order to walk in the light. What we need is we need to be cleansed and purified from our sin through the blood of Jesus, which John is going to address in a couple verses later. And he says when we walk in the light We have fellowship with one another again I would have expected him to say we have fellowship with god, but he he says we have fellowship with one another You see when we're living in darkness in sin I I don't think this is a I mean we've all done it We don't want to be near others who are living in the light. That's what jesus said in john 3. We don't want to come to the light lest our deeds be exposed It exposes our sin. When when we're around others, we lie. We say we're in fellowship with the Father when we're not because we don't want to come to the light. But when the gospel takes hold of us, what happens? Oh, I have no problem telling you that I have sinned against God, but Jesus died for my sin, and His blood covers my sin. And I'm cleansed from my sin. And I can walk freely in the light because I'm forgiven. Because Jesus paid it all. This is what John's getting at, what it means to walk in the light. We don't lie to others about where we're at. Verses 8 and 9, we don't lie to ourselves. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Self-deception is everywhere, and it's deadly. And we can fall into it a couple of ways. We might rationalize it with theology. I'm already perfect in Christ. I'm declared righteous in Him. I don't really sin anymore. John Wesley did this with Christian Perfection. Uh, I no longer sin. I just make mistakes. Or we might redefine sin. I don't commit really bad sins like murder. Just the respectable ones. It wasn't really gossip. It was a prayer request. I just want to tell you about what they're doing and where they're living and who they're running with so you could pray. We might separate the letter of the law from the intent of the law. You know what I mean by that? That's like a kid who kicks his brother and tries to get out of trouble by saying, well, you said not to hit him. I didn't hit him. Kicked him. I didn't hit him. Do you pay a doctor to lie to you? We would never want that, right? Oh, someone said, yeah. We don't want that, right? In fact, we get second opinions and third opinions, and doctors encourage us to do that if they're good doctors. We want the doctor to tell us the truth about our condition. I just yesterday drove down to Clovis to be with a dear friend of mine that some of you know, Myron Mayer. He had a stroke last week. Uh, He's doing pretty well. Um, It affected the right side of his body. Um, But I was there for five hours. And I think the first 30 minutes was digging out all the information of, okay, where are you at? What have the doctors said? How can I pray for you? What's the prognosis? Are you going to get better? Uh, You know, all of these things. Why? Because we want to know the truth of our condition, so that we know how to plan, what to expect, where to go for help. He starts physical therapy on Monday, and he's going to do both physical and neurological therapy. Of course, that makes sense. Well, with sin, a correct diagnosis is necessary so that we can get to the cure. And the cure is not our ethical obedience. The cure is the finished work of Jesus for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the alternative to denial is confession, which leads to assurance. That's what John's getting at. So if you deny you have sin, there's no assurance. Why? Because you really are a sinner. But if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So now you have assurance that your sins are forgiven. Again, it's not that you never sin. It's what you do with that. And our measure, I think one measure anyway, of Christian maturity is that the time between our sinning and the time between our confessing becomes shorter and shorter. Have you experienced that? You go sin and then you wait a week or two and you live in misery for a week or two or a year. Or 10 years. But then as you grow in maturity, that sinning and confessing, the time gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Isn't that what you would want in your relationship with your spouse or your kids or your friends? Is that, man, I did sin against you. I used my words as weapons. I spoke harshly instead of kindly but i'm coming to you right away and saying i'm so sorry will you forgive me for that i don't want to be that way i i want to be different and by the grace of god and the power of the spirit i'm i'm not going to do that anymore i'm going to use my words to build up rather than tear down will you forgive me and that reconciliation is quicker and in this verse again i want you to see this The emphasis is not even on the strength of your confession. It's not. Who's the one who's faithful and just? Not us. The emphasis is on the one who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So yes, we confess our sins. But Jesus is the one who's faithful and just. And and that gets at the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? This message that we heard from him. There is someone who paid for our sins. And by faith, we can be forgiven. Not because, you know, it's the good old boy club and he just says, I, you can come on in even though you're a sinner. No, Jesus paid for all of our sin. And removed the penalty of that sin by nailing it to a cross. So that we could be forgiven and declared righteous. And he's just in doing so because he paid for it. Our sin has to be paid for somewhere on us or on Jesus. It's never just simply wiped away. It's paid for somewhere. And that's the good news of the gospel is that we can live our own life in our own kingdom, living and walking in darkness and pay the penalty of our sin forever in hell, or we can believe that Jesus died for our sin, that he paid for it, and have life and walk in the light and be with him forever and have assurance of that. So then we no longer lie about God. This is the conclusion if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, there is a little difference, isn't there, between verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8 is, I don't currently have any sin. That's the lie to our self-deception lie that I'm not living in sin. I don't have any sin. Verse 10 says, I've never sinned. I have not sinned ever. I don't even believe in sin. Well, that makes God a liar because He's the one who says that we live in sin and that we're born in sin. It's a denial of the sin nature, the fall, Adam and Eve. No, the reality is is that we are permeated by sin. Just like salt flavors every drop of the Pacific Ocean, sin affects every part of us. We can't get away from it. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, right? Some people think that depravity means that we're just everybody's Adolf Hitler. That's not the case. What it means is every part of us has been affected by the fall. Our mind, our will, our intellect, our doing, our motives, our heart. So John's argument from 6 to 10 is, Lie to others and lie to yourself and pretty soon you'll lie about God and call Him a liar and say that His diagnosis is not true. Now I have a burden about this with our church plant that may our church never give people the impression that they have to pretend they live a life of sinlessness to be welcome, to be a part of our gathering. Rather, that we would be a church that says, oh, we know, we know you sin." Why do we know it? Well, I sin. And Scripture says it. We're never going to reach perfection in this life. We still need the gospel, but the good news is is that we're not alone, and the Spirit of God is greater than the one who's in the world, and He's in us, and we've been born of God, so we no longer practice a lifestyle of sinning. We practice a lifestyle of confessing that sin and moving on and walking in the light. That's the assurance and the hope. We are not what we were. Because we've been born of God. And John's going to get into it over and over that this, this reality that we're born of God means we're changed. We're not the same. But sometimes in Christian circles, the impression is if I come to this church and I am part of this gathering, i got to put up the wall. Like, I, I don't ever really sin, right? You know, when you hear the pastor and all he does is talk about one sin he committed 20 years ago, Before he knew Jesus as a sermon illustration. Now we gotta be wise. I know we're not, we don't need to just air our dirty laundry and expose everything, but this is the reality. This is the the truth of the gospel. Well, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, this is the assurance of life in the light. So he's been talking about sin, and he says, hey, this is what it means to walk in the light. Don't lie about this. Don't say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm doing great when I'm not. I'm living in darkness. Don't say, well, I don't currently have any sin when I do. And don't ever say I've never sinned or redefine it because now you're calling God a liar. And so he, it's like he's just taught this and, and he knows that this is kind of weighty. This is kind of heavy. And So he says, my dear children, my little children technia there's two words for, in the greek for children and this is little children he has a it's a term of endearment john obviously had been ministering to them he 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 loved them he saw them as part of his family and he says i write these things to you so that you would not sin and we saw this last week why does he write it so that you would not sin Because sin steals joy. He's not writing to them so that they would be perfectionists. He's saying, I'm writing this to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's chapter 5, verse 13. That's the big picture and the main point, assurance. He says, I'm writing this to you at the beginning, right? Verse 4, that your joy may be complete. And when you look at all the I'm writing these things that you may know. So look up the phrase that you may know in 1 John. Four places. Chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be complete. And what does that joy look like? Well, chapter 2, verse 1, that you may not sin. Sin steals joy and steals our assurance of salvation in Jesus. That's why he doesn't want you to sin. is because you will lack joy and you will lack assurance. And you go, yeah, that's right, because I sin, and that's exactly how I feel. I have no joy, and I wonder if I've out the grace of God. I wonder if it's, this is it, this is the one. And, that's, and what is his antidote? His antidote is to turn to Jesus and say, hey, the blood of Jesus completely cleanses you from the stain of your sin. Hey, look, he's chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He says later in chapter 2, verse 26, I'm writing these things to you that you, who, uh, about those who are trying to deceive you. False teachers steal our joy by leading us astray and telling us wrong things about God and his word and about our Christian life. And then he says in 5.13 that you may know you have eternal life. Doubt and lack of assurance steals our joy. And John writes this letter to provide assurance that if we believe the gospel of Jesus, we're part of the family, we are children of God, we've been born of God, and we don't have to fear or doubt that we'll ever lose that fellowship with God and with his son Jesus. Now he says in verses 1 and 2, here's how you can know even in the midst of your sin, that you could have assurance because Jesus is our advocate and he's our atonement. He uses two words. First one is paraclete in verse 1 where we get the word helper, advocate. It's used of the Holy Spirit in John, the upper room, John 15. The Spirit, I'm going to give you another helper that's going to be with you forever. He's going to be in you. And the second word he uses is this word halasmos for atonement. Which is in verse 2. that He's the propitiation. That's a big word, right? How many syllables is that? Propitiation. Five. I mean, that's impressive that a boy from Vallejo can say a five-syllable word. Now that word is big, but it's important. So the halasmos, the hilasterion, a, a related word. You remember in the old covenant in the t- temple, you go into the Holy of Holies, and what was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones, right? The Ark's there. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, on the top, there were angels carved in gold, and they were, had wings, and it was covering the top of the Ark. It was the lid. You remember when they lifted it up and all the Nazis got melted Favorite part of the whole movie. Well, that place in between the angels was called the hilasterion, the mercy seat. You've heard that, right? The place of mercy, the place of propitiation. Why was it called that? Because when the high priest went in there, what he did was he took the blood of the bulls and goats, and when he sprinkled it, he made sure to sprinkle it right there. So that the blood was right there <coughs> in between the angels, which represented the presence of God. Because God's Shekinah, His, His manifest glory was right there between the angels. And so what, what was happening was the blood was appearing in the presence of God to say, cover that sin for a year. Now Jesus, who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's not covered for just a year, it's taken away forever. And the author of Hebrews says he didn't just appear in the temple, he appeared in heaven, in God's very presence, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He brought it up and he appeared in the presence of God for us. And you know what he's doing right now, today, right this minute? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as our advocate who is our atonement so every time we sin it's as if jesus leans over from the right hand of the father and says father i died for that sin i bled for that sin i covered that sin would you forgive them and the father says of course i would forgive him because he so loved the world he's the one who gave his son jesus is our advocate Uh, Newsflash we will sin until we're glorified Now we don't want to I don't want to But I do What then do we do about our sin John says if we lie about our sin if we hide our sin if we cover it up We're walking in darkness No what we need to do is confess our sins verse 9 Flee to Jesus, our high priest, our advocate. Now imagine this picture, an advocate, a helper. This is, imagine if you were in a court, and you had the best advocate lawyer you could ever dream of, and they come up with the best defense for you. And then imagine that that advocate was also going to be the judge. What would you do? You'd celebrate because he just defended you, and now he's going to judge you? Well, he just gave himself all of the best defense. You'd be fist pumping the air. You'd be dancing for joy in the courtroom because you know you're going to win the case. Turn over to Romans 8. This is exactly how Paul describes it in Romans 8. Verse 35. Actually, let's start with, oh my goodness. Ah. Verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God has given over all judgment to the Son. And the Son is our advocate, our lawyer, our high priest interceding for us. That gives us assurance, doesn't it? That when I wake up tomorrow and I end up sinning tomorrow, and I'm struggling with this reality of this sin, I wish I could give up, whatever it is. In your life. That you can look to Jesus, your high priest, and know that He's interceding for you in the moment of your sin. Look again at First John chapter 2, verse 1. When is He advocating for us? Well, I love this present tense. If anyone does sin, we have present tense continually an advocate with the Father jesus christ the righteous one he's interceding in the midst of your sinning that's what john is saying now you might be tempted to think well that means we could just sin that grace would abound well of course not because you've been born of god and you don't want to do it and so that thought of jesus advocating in the midst of your sinning it doesn't cause us to say oh man i'm gonna i'm just gonna sin that grace would abound no it causes us to repent It causes us to turn and say, I don't want to do it anymore. How could it be that in the midst of my sin, Jesus is advocating? I love him and I want to obey him. I don't want to sin. But this gives us assurance, doesn't it? We don't have to doubt in that moment that we've out sinned the grace of God. Instead, we can have confidence that Jesus' death is enough, more than enough. He paid it all. Tim Keller has this famous quote, and I've butchered it and made my own. I've said it a few different ways, right? Cheer up, you're worse than you think, right? Here's what Tim Keller says. You are more sinful than you ever dared imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. At the same time. At the same time. But that's the good news of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean we remain in sin. It doesn't mean that we just sort of wallow in it and say, oh man, I'm a sinner and that's just God's job is to love me and forgive my sin. No. His blood cleanses us from all sin, verse 7. He's the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction, and John's going to go on to say that what it does is produces life in us and light in us and fruit in us so that we obey God and don't disobey Him anymore jesus is our advocate he's also our atonement see he can be our high priest because he was our substitute if he wasn't our substitute he couldn't advocate for us you know how i know that because the old testament priests couldn't advocate for us their lawyer needed a lawyer they were sinners just like us but jesus was our atoning sacrifice The propitiation, the satisfaction, the place of mercy right there. In fact, turn over to chapter 4, verse 10. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when we see the death of Jesus, we see the Father's love on display. The Father who's loved us, the one who is light in whom there's no darkness at all, has set His affection upon us, given His Son for us to be our substitute so that He could be our satisfaction, so that our sins could be removed from us and paid for forever. And that gives us assurance. I've written these things that you may know you have eternal life. You see, we see from this that Christians are those who continually confess their sins, continually believe in Jesus, and do in doing so, continually walk in the light as the Father is in the light. Beloved, daily and continually believe in Jesus. Confess your sins and trust in Christ's sufficient work for you. If, you, if this is the, the rhythms of your day and your life, assurance is certain to be yours. It's not that you never sin. I mean, we want that because sin steals joy, but the reality is if anyone does sin, and they do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Now, question. Why did I title this thing, Walking in the Light Manifests the Gospel? Because this is more than just about ourselves. In closing, look at the bookends of the passage. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from him and declare to you, okay? So this is a message that John heard from Jesus and is declaring to the audience. Chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The bookends say this is not just about us and our assurance, though that is a great deal to do with it. It's about this reality of walking in the light and living in assurance and believing the gospel and confessing our sin is a message to the world that they can have the same thing, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior. And that He has forgiven us and He can forgive you. They will know you're Christians by the love you have for one another. In this case, it's knowing you're Christians by the reality of the gospel in your life that's manifested that you have joy, that your joy is full, that you're confessing sin and you have an advocate with the Father and you have assurance and you're walking in the light and you have fellowship with one another. So this is much bigger than me sitting in my chair thinking, I need assurance today. It's, I'm on mission. And there's a message that my life proclaims. And the message isn't, I'm sinless and I'm better than you. That would be the lying and not practicing the truth. The message is, no, I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And His forgiveness has given me indestructible joy, even in the midst of my sin and suffering. In fact, I have joy that counts it a blessing to suffer. Knowing that this world's not my home and I have a world waiting for me. A home reserved for me that, that moths won't eat away and rust won't wear away and thieves won't break in and steal. And it's changed my life. And it's not because I'm so great, it's because Jesus is so great. So this is the, the hope we have is that this assurance This letter, this is to us as a church being a witness in this community that, man, may your lives be on display manifesting this. Don't be tempted when you share the gospel to to tell your friends and family, oh man, I got it all together. No, share your struggles. Share your suffering, share your heartaches, but be sure to say, well, the reason I have hope is not because I'm good, great, not because I don't sin, it's because Jesus died for my sin because he's so great. He's the one who's faithful and just. That's the the hope we have here. This is the excitement. This is the assurance. This is the the message. This is why John was so excited and said, "Hey, listen, that which we saw with our eyes and we touched with our hands concerning the word of life that was made known to us, we received it. Now we're proclaiming it to you. We're declaring it to you." And he starts with God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And here's what I think will happen. As the Lord uses your friendships and your relationships in the community and people are weary and worn out from their sin because sin steals joy. And they know that you're just like them. You're not better than them, you're just like them. They will turn to you and say, what in the world do you have that I don't have? And now you have an opportunity to share the gospel. You have an opportunity to say, Well, I have a Savior who died for my sin and completely, continually cleanses me from the stain of my sin and advocates for me in the midst of my sin and He changes me so that I no longer sin the way I used to and now I'm being conformed into His image and I'm growing. And 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see Him, we'll be like Him. That is exciting. That is hopeful. That's why we exist as a church. It's why we planted the church. So join with me in that father. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this hope we have in Jesus The freedom of the light To walk in the light and speak honestly and not lie And not deceive ourselves or others or lie about you father But to speak what's true Oh, I am a great sinner, but I have a great savior who is greater than my sin, and His grace completely cleanses me from my sin. Not I, but Christ who lives in me, as we sang, Father. As we turn to the table now, may it be a time of celebration of these realities. In Jesus' name, amen.